the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, it looks like we're going to have a new Supreme Court justice. And then what does it mean when we say the rise of the ums? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. And Aubrey, before we get into anything, we've got to celebrate. We Today's have to a celebrate. big day. People are thinking, why are we celebrating? It was Aubrey's birthday. Are we still doing Aubrey's birthday? <laughs> what doing is, my birthday. <laughs> what is the celebration? Aubrey, you and I just figured out that as best we could tell, today yeah. is your one-year anniversary on the show. You are Woo-hoo! a... You are now a veteran of radio. I Congratulations. A, thank you very much. I am not quite a toddler, but I'm no longer a newborn. I'm somewhere <laughs> in between. So congratulations to me and to you oh. for having me for a year, Brian. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. I mean, putting up for a year. No, congratulations. I do remember when you started those. Doesn't it feel like you you get this a lot more? You know a oh, lot more, but a year goes fast. Yes. I mean, I was actually like kind of reflecting on, on that. Wow. A year goes fast. One, like you yes. said, 100%. But also, I mean, I, you know, you were really, really having to lead me and carry a lot for a while. And you kept saying, it'll be okay. You'll get it. And I'd be like, but You'll I don't know. It? How do you know? How do you? You'll get it. And like, I get it now. So you're, you've been a great coach along the way. And it's so fun to celebrate a year. Here's here's to many more. To many more. You're lifting your your coffee. I got an unsweetened iced tea. tea. (laughs) To many more. Congratulations. And uh, as you said, to many, to many more years of the common good. Looking forward to the next year. Okay. Uh, Major news. There's news all over the place, but I think probably the biggest story in America, in the United States, obviously worldwide, the biggest story continues to be the awful um, war in the Ukraine and the the new images that we're seeing. We need to come. Continue yes. to be in prayer for the Ukrainian people. I don't know. I, I, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but I don't know if you saw the picture of President Zelensky yesterday. He was actually toured some of the areas where a lot of the atrocities have happened. Oh. And they put up a side by side picture of him from the day before Russia invaded mm. and yesterday, which is like five weeks, maybe six weeks. I, I'm losing Wild. track a little yeah. bit. He, The side-by-side pictures, he looked like he has aged 10 years in heart. the six Bless weeks. And so we need to continue to be praying for yeah. him, for yeah. the people. I mean, just what they are going through. Uh, now we're debating whether or not it's a genocide. And just the fact I that we're debating that. I heard that on NPR that, this morning. Like, our, we're debating that kind of the use of that term at this we, point. But either way, it's the fact that you're right. That's even on the table goes to show you the devastation and the, atro- the exactly. atrociousness of what's happening. 
Exactly. So we have to continue praying. But uh, probably the biggest story here in the U.S. is that the Senate paved the way for the final confirmation vote on Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson after the Judici- Judiciary Committee deadlocked on advancing her nomination. Yeah. But uh, three Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, announced their support for uh, Jackson. So it basically it already looked like she was a shoe in because of the de- if as long as all the Democrats voted right. for her. But now you add these three Republicans right. and it's kind of a fait accompli. Everything is political, Aubrey. I, we know that. So <clears throat> some of the tweets coming out and this and that. But uh, I want to reflect on her historic nature. But I, I then want to move towards <clears throat> different uh, ways people have even said that they're going to oppose her and mm. oppose her nomination. But before that, I know for you, you and I had a great debate yeah. a couple of weeks ago about uh, you know, when you disagree with somebody, but but also the historical nature of an African-American woman yep. coming on to the Supreme Court. So we should pause and and before talking about the politics of it all, we should pause and just say this is a historic nomination for the United States. Oh, I mean, yeah, just to ha- for the first time in the history of the Supreme Court to have the first black woman on the court is absolutely like history making. Absolutely. And again, whether or not you agree with her judiciary philosophy or not, I do think we can pause to acknowledge that, like, this is good movement in our nation. Like, this is a good, good thing that's happening, and it's about time. So I, yeah. I'm i applauding and celebrating, you know, this this moment in our history. Now, I know not everybody is, but I definitely am wholeheartedly. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's somewhere where uh, you and I had a healthy debate the other day because mm-hmm. I said, hey, I would love to see an African-American woman on the Supreme Court. Yeah. I think that is huge. That is awesome. I'm just not sure I want to see her on the Supreme Court yeah. because of her political ideologies and her yeah. beliefs are so different than maybe some of the things that I believe. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of Republicans, especially, have taken that stance. But it's been interesting to see the different ways they've said it. OK, so uh, you uh, while I was on vacation, some of the hearings were going on. Can we just say that maybe the time has come for the Supreme Court nomination uh, hearings to not be televised anymore? <laughs> I think uh, this is something you and I were talking about the other day. Oh, my and goodness. Even the, even the, uh, the State of the Union address. Like, yeah, I know, yes, I, you know, yes. I know we want we want to hear we want to know. So I'm not saying, like, keep it private or secret because that gets into trouble, too, like when. Oh, you can't be in the room where the sausage gets made. But at the same right. time, like the showmanship and the arrogance the grandstanding. and the grandstanding oh. is just so it's embarrassing to me. Yes. And it's like, oh, this is who's leading our country. These <laughs> middle schoolers. Like, so I don't know how we somehow we need to we need to know so that nothing like because the accountability, I think, publicly really, really matters. So that is really mm. important. We get to see who people truly are. That matters. But also like, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see what's happening. So I, I, I have very mixed feelings about it. Anyway, go ahead, Brian. Well, I'm just going to say something we've learned about politicians on both sides of the aisle. That TV light comes on and they become bad people they're probably bad people anyway yeah. but they become grandstanders and so that was embarrassing uh but also part of a healthy system is going i support her i don't for her uh or whoever the nominee for their beliefs for the way they're going to rule and uh and so there are people that i really respect in congress who said i can't 
vote to um, to confirm her. Uh, and so two different ones. Uh the crazy lady, Marjorie Taylor Greene, what did yeah. she say? She tweeted yesterday, basically the three Republicans who are going to back her are, quote, uh, pro-pedophile because of some of the things she has oh ruled on. And you're like, well, that's not helpful. Oh, no. But the one I do want to highlight, because, Aubrey, you and I talk a lot about civility on this show. Mm-hmm. Ben Sass, Ben Sass, who is a congressman that I tend to really gravitate towards out of Nebraska, not completely, but he said uh, – he he went to uh, he let out a statement a couple days ago, basically to say that he wasn't going to support her nomination. But he said, uh, "I'm going to just do this from memory." He said, "I have all the respect in the world for her. She is a uh, a honorable judge. Uh, I think it's important that we have an African American woman on the bench. Mm-hmm. But because of how much I disagree with her ideologically, I can't in yeah. good conscience." Work. When I read that, I said. I will sign on to that statement right there. Like that was the picture of political civility like for that, me. Like that is an appropriate way to disagree 100%. or to say no. Right. Rather than tearing down character, rather than belittling, rather than dehumanizing, let's honor, but then say it's the stances that I disagree with. It's the philosophy, yeah. not the person. Person's wonderful, full of integrity. It's the stances. That's that is a great example of how we. You're right. How we can disagree civilly in this day and age. Yeah, and that's what we've talked about about so much in yeah. the church, because uh, you know our friend Jim Dennison. We always talk about his book. Respectfully, I disagree. Mm-hmm. We need to become people who can disagree without being disagreeable. And Ben Sass was the one during the confirmation hearings who took Ted Cruz to task for how he was acting and basically said, you know what? There's buffoonery, I believe was his word. Good word. And I would respect people on both sides of the aisle that I agree with and disagree with. If they would just have this kind of posture that said, listen, I'm willing to take, you know, Democrat, I'm a Republican Democrat over there. Let's go out, have a meal, have a coffee. Let's have a drink. But I can't agree with you. We're going to go at it. And instead, everything's about scoring political points and everything is about this lack of civility. And as I've said on the show before, I believe this disrespectful nature within our political class just seeps down through the whole culture, all the way down to our kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where you see the other as the enemy and in this childlike way, you polarize so that you can get more attention. And honestly, we've talked about this before on the show. It makes me feel... Feel like a political orphan because I'm mm. like I don't like this I don't like that I don't like the way you're acting I don't like the way you're acting and I want to see a woman or a man of integrity like mm-hmm. just give me some integrity just give me some compassion just give me some like forthright character and then we can have a conversation but the, but you're right like it is seeping down I mean you know, not to get totally crazy here, but let's talk. Let's seeping down to Will Smith and Chris Rock. Like, mm-hmm. can we disagree civilly? I don't know. Yeah. Again, feels like the bar is <laughs> really low, but let's get better at it. Yep. And I think the church can lead the way. Yeah. And it's not leading the way right now, yeah. but I really think we can. So uh, new Supreme Court justice coming. Uh, you may disagree or agree with her, but let's watch for tone. Let's watch. Let's see how people react. Right. I think that will that character will be shown in the people that we should be following and those that we should not. And Aubrey, we talk about this uh, regularly. You and I are both pastors. 
So I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, kind of the Downers Grove area. You're at Renewal Church in West Chicago, the name of the church that I somehow forgot yesterday. Uh, but <laughs> you're at Renewal you? Church of Chicago. And one of the things that not only do we talk about often, but you and I are wrestling with in our own churches is what's going on post-COVID with the people who haven't come back? Yeah, yeah. Where are they? Who are they? How do you re-engage them? Because, well, let me just ask you, what do you see in your own church? You're seeing uh, probably like my church where you've got a core of people who are back and yep. it's normal and yep. this, that, but then kind of a ring of people who aren't, right? Is that what's going on at Yeah, Renewal? I mean, that's exactly right. And they're not necessarily... Um like totally disconnected from the church. There's a lot of people that are still showing up to our online service. But then there are people who are just kind of like maybe not sure if they want to go back. I mean, I I hope it's okay. I'm going to out my parents for a minute. My parents love <laughs> church, but my parents are even like, I don't know. It's gotten really easy to just stay in our pajamas and turn on the TV on Sunday mornings. And I, you know, I think we've had guests on the show here before say like, if it is in your ability to get back to church, it's time oh, to get back to church. The time has right. come. If you have have a valid reason, health issues, absolutely feel free to use that online service. But like that can't be your modus operandi for church anymore because that's not what church is. But yes, that's so right. all that to say, yes, we have seen all of that, Brian. And so people are not coming back to church, but others are just coming back much less often. We talked about Ed Stetzer's article where he said kind of regular attendance now is once a month. And yeah. what do you do with that? Yeah. Well, Mike Moore over at Christianity Today uh, wrote about something they cur- they, they're calling the ums, U-M-M-S, the rise of the ums. And he says, unlike nuns and duns. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, we're getting all these titles of people who are feeling disengaged from the church. He said, unlike the nuns and the duns, many church adjacent Christians want to return to a local body, but they feel stuck. So help us understand who these ums are and maybe how they're different from these other categories. Yeah. First of all, I'm just laughing that it is ums. And you're right. It's because it sort of rhymes with like the nuns and the ones or whatever. But okay, so uh, ums are a totally different category. They are fond of the local church. They were active members in the past. They take Jesus seriously. They actually want to belong to a local congregation. They're not bitter, bitter or cynical. So this is not the same as like an ex-evangelical type of category, right? right? Okay. Um, if anything, ums are uncomfortable with not being committed to a church body, but there's a gap between their desire and their situation. They're calling them ums because they are uncertain and hesitant about how to re-engage with the church. And although their individual stories are myriad and diffuse, uh, there are four types of ums as represented in in this article at Christianity Today. Okay, so let me go through these quickly. There's the disoriented ums. So um, maybe over the past couple years, they became new parents. Maybe their job changed. Maybe just like the uh, this article says the helter-skelter rhythms of the pandemic upset the stability of their lives, which the church used to provide. So just major life changes. They are no longer active in church. Then there's the demotivated ums. And because of a you know variety of problems they've seen in the church, right? The downfalls of pastors, the ongoing sins of racism and sexism. They love the church, but they just can't quite bring themselves to like connect back to a congregation. Mm. There's the discouraged ums where just like the heavy suffering grief over the past two years, I would maybe say they are depressed. Mm. Um, 
you know, it, they just feel estranged from a local church. It's hard to go back. Maybe church members have died. Maybe there's been divorce. Maybe there's been loss of relationships. So they're discouraged. And there's the disembodied ums. And this is something we talk about a lot on the show. They went digital. Like they just began to watch their services online rather than returning in person. So that is a that's an interesting category to me because I think that probably does represent a lot of people in the church today. Yeah. And so uh, as we're coming to better understand who's not around right now and what why people aren't coming back. A lot of this just kind of points to people getting out of the rhythm of going to church and now they feel weird going back. And do I want to go back? Let's ask the question that I think sits heavy on you and I, what do we do about this? What's, what is the answer uh, for us as pastors, for church leaders, elders, deacons who are listed, whatever else it might be, people who miss these people in their church and go, what's going on? What what might be the answer here? And then I also, before we're done, I want to talk about what's the answer to the people who might be like, yes, I'm an um, that's uh-huh. me. But but first to church leaders, what's the answer here? I mean, honestly, I think this is going to sound a little old school, but I actually think it's as simple as like calling those people mm-hmm. or inviting them out to coffee, having a phone call and just encouraging them to come back, like hear what's going on. And that's just that personal invitation, because I think a personal invitation goes a long way. Like I grew up in a Southern Baptist church when we finally started going to church and we would do like old school, like visitations, like the the deacons mm-hmm. and the you know volunteers would knock on people's door and visit them and invite them back. And I don't know that we need to go knocking on people's doors in this day and age, but like just that simple relational reaching out. And then I think there also, I would say, like, are have we in our preaching, in our programming, in our discipleship taught people the value of what it means to, you know, gather as the church? Right. So I think there's like the personal, and then there's probably the like overarching: Are we discipling people in what it means to be a part of a church? So we need to get yeah. that right as well. Yeah, I, I think that's well put. I think the answer is not brain surgery. It yeah. is let's go tell people they're loved and missed. Yeah. Let's go make sure people and 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 admit to people who I think you mentioned this yesterday. When COVID started, a lot of pastors, we were just trying to figure this all out. We didn't know how to do this. And some people fell through the cracks along the wayside. And I think it probably would mean a lot to people to tell them that, hey, I'm really sorry, like that. I yeah. haven't talked to you in a while. Like, Will you forgive me? <laughs> like, right, let's, right. But we, you are missed. We do notice this. So how about for somebody who is like, yeah, you know, that's me. Yeah. That is me. I, I understand the value of church. I've grown up in the church. Mm. I just can't get myself back. Like what, what might be a word to those people? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know a lot of those people right now. And some of them are my very, very good friends or like even my family. I was going to say your parents. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I think there's a couple ways to think about it. I think just start by like, yes, it is hard, especially once you're out of the rhythm and some of your reasons are really, really valid. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think too, maybe remember too, like the church needs you. So it's not all about what you can get from a church, but like there is something that God has given you, gifted you with to do or to bring to the table at your church. And like part of the image of God in your local church community is missing when you're not there. And so I just think like 
sometimes we need to think about the fact that we are not just consumers, but contributors to the mission, mm. to the kingdom, to the gospel. So our presence matters like for that, like it's not just about what we're getting, but about what we're giving, what we're contributing, yeah. how, what, how we're meant to engage with other people. And then I, I just think there is absolutely, and I get it. Look, I'm an introvert. I would rather stay at home watching church on TV in my pajamas, <laughs> but there's just no replacement for worshiping together, encouraging each other learning together, taking the sacraments together, because we're meant to be an embodied people. And mm. and when we continue to distance ourselves from that, it becomes very easy to distance ourselves from it. Um, but to st- take that step of faith, I think it might encourage your heart more than you even realize. Amen. Amen. Well, go check out Christianity Today, The Rise of the Ums. Uh, fascinating reading about kind of research of what's going on out there right now. You know, in these uncertain times, it could be hard to live with certainty. In his book, Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World, Dr. David Jeremiah provides a biblical roadmap to living in certainty. During the month of April, you can enter to win a copy of this book along with unshakable confidence cards, 10 challenges to remind us to find confidence in our Heavenly Father and stay focused on Him. And one grand prize winner will win a signed, leather-bound Jeremiah study Bible. Everyone who enters will receive the April issue of Turning Points Devotional Magazine and an instant ebook download of the Seven Signs of Easter, Evidence of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. So enter today at 1160hope.com slash confidence and make sure to listen to Turning Point with David Jeremiah weekday mornings at 930 a.m. right here on AM 1160. That sounds fascinating. Oh, that sounds, sounds wonderful. so interesting for, for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Well, Scott Sauls, about a month ago, I was just kind of reading through this, wrote about damaged humans and the kindness of Jesus. Oh, he's so and let me good just at read this kind of thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. He really is. Let me just read the first line. I love how Jesus related to damaged, condemned people. Let's just stop there because mm. we can lose sight of that, Aubrey. Mm. But the people that Jesus gravitated towards yep. and reverse uh, the other side, the people who gravitated towards him, uh, were the most unexpected people that you could think about, right? You would have expected, oh, yeah. it's the Pharisees, it's the religious leaders, it's the educated, it's this. No, it was, uh, as Saul's uh, puts it here, it was the damaged, con- yep. uh, condemned people. Yep. That kind of changes everything, doesn't it? Oh, it, and we so easily lose sight of this. I don't know what this is. I do it too. So I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to point a finger. I'm trying to say we just so easily lose sight of like, oh, well, we, you know, those people are, those people are sinners or they're not walking with God. They're godless. They're extreme. They're quote unquote woke, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to spend time with them because they're a threat to the gospel or whatever. And it's like, are you reading the Bible? Do you know who <laughs> Jesus is? Like, Jesus, like, not just loved, but, like, liked, associated with those who were always being condemned by the religious people in, you know, in the community. And that's right. It's it. We just and again, I'm I'm included. We just don't get this right. Like, we're so quick to put up boundaries and to put up relational like i will not associate with them and we may not say it that boldly but like it comes out and then it's it's the 
opposite. I mean, it's the actual opposite of who Jesus hung out with. And I don't know, like, it's going to be an act of God that's going to change us to go, what if I actually began to live like Jesus did and love those who Jesus did? Uh, the Lord's going to have to do a mighty work, I think, in a lot of the church to make this change. But it is, it's fascinating how much we miss this. Yeah. And on the one hand, it can make us feel really um, emboldened that, oh, if God, if Jesus was, a, those were the people he was accepting, then, then man, what, what, am, what about an opportunity for me to come to him? So there's a personal side, but then it also, and what Saul's is going to get at, this starts to direct how we as the church should act. So let me read part of what he says. He says, as was the case with Jesus, so it will be with his people when we create environments that communicate, quote, no condemnation first, before we ever start talking about law, obedience and ethics because with Jesus grace and love establish the environment for the morality conversation wow. it's not our repentance that leads to God's kindness but God's kindness that leads to our repentance wow Listen to this line. After more than 25 years of pastoral ministry, Saul says, I have yet to meet a person who surrendered to Jesus because a Christian scolded them about their <laughs> ethics or lifestyle. Uh. Have you? So I love that uh, picture. Like you said, we, we read Saul so often because he cuts yeah. to it so yeah. well. What is it that sets up the environment? He's not saying here, don't ever talk right? about ethics and right? obedience. This isn't an either or. Right? He's saying the no condemnation, the grace, the love, that's first. That sets the groundwork, the environment, to use his words, that later on down the road, when they've put their faith in Christ and when they we're discipling and whatever, that's when we talk about the other things. But we often lead with the first uh, condemnation, judgment, ethics, all of this stuff. I love this picture, Aubrey, of of creating the right environment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting again to go back to Jesus. That you know, we often found him like at parties, right? Or you often found him defending the vulnerable, or you know, sitting and telling stories. And so there is something about that. Like there was clearly a relational connection that Jesus was intentionally making as he spent time with sinners, as he spent time with the ashamed in his society, and then challenged them to take up their cross and follow him, to leave their life of sin and follow him. So I think that, you know, that's the environment, right? I love that he says that earlier, and I know you already read this, but I think it's worth reading again, like reverse the order. You know, Jesus talking to the sinful woman, he says two things to her. I do not condemn you, now leave your life of sin. Reverse the order of these things, you lose Christianity. And mm. so it is like having that environment where there isn't condemnation, but then inviting people towards an obedient life in Christ. Like that has to be the order. And I don't know what that container looks like in your church, in my church, they probably look different, but can we create environments of compassion, acceptance, belonging, and then move people towards belief and obedience? I think, you know, that would go a really, really long way. And like you said, it doesn't mean we're not not preaching the gospel. We're not not mm -hmm. calling people to repentance. We're not even avoiding that. We're just doing what Jesus did, which was create a relational connection with people that was authentic and then move them, point them through that, point them to Jesus. Yeah, Saul's uh, later on writes, grace must come before ethics. I think a lot of people out there are going to disagree with them. Yeah. But he says, 
Grace must come before ethics. Love must come before the morality discussion. Love, the broad embrace of the narrow path, will trigger some of the most life-giving experiences you'll ever be a part of. And again, I, I just think we need to wrestle as Christ followers. We yeah. need to wrestle with Saul, what Saul's rights there. Yeah. Uh, is that correct right now that, that we show grace and love and, and then later in the conversation comes law and ethics as, as they've put their faith in Jesus and go, I, I think as we, I, I think we need to feel the, the freedom for ourselves yeah. in that. And then we need to offer that same freedom to others. So again, go to scottsauls.com. You will not uh, regret going there. He, he writes so beautifully and challenging us, uh, damage humans and the kindness and I, of I think Jesus. Like one other thing, Brian, I think yeah, go ahead. something that I didn't say before is like, Part of this posture is remembering that we're the damaged humans, right? Like, I think it's so easy to be like, they're broken, they're vulnerable, they're the ashamed. No, no, no. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Like, so let us remember who we were apart from Christ, that God came for us. Therefore, let's go for other people. That's right. We've said it before, but we'll say it again. It is my one year anniversary at the Common Good. Brian, you just celebrated your third year. In right? January. So, in yes. January. Okay, okay. Year well, three. So, I believe fun. the show started on January. It was either the 7th or the 9th, three years ago. So, okay. Wow. Uh, I'm an old, old veteran at you this You are now. a veteran. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad we have many years to go. And uh, one of the things that's has been really fun for me over the past year is some of the ministries that you and I get to partner with um, Mm -hmm. to invite people to help support. And in the month of March, we've been partnering with SOS International, which is this incredible ministry um, that's literally on the ground in countries around the world, helping rescue and rehab women and girls in situations of human trafficking. And some of the situations are absolutely unthinkable, like girls in cages. And um, we've gotten to partner with them to raise support at 1160hope.com. And we're so close to our goal. Like, I think we're just a couple thousands of so dollars close. away from our goal. And so we just want to encourage you. And um, if, you know, you're you're just driving to work today or driving home from work at this point, thinking about your dinner, but you're thinking, "Ah, I want I want to do something meaningful with my life. I want to make a difference in the world." This is a small but powerful uh, thing you can do for the kingdom of God simply by going to 1160hope.com, clicking on that SOS international banner and and actually being a part of the life change that's happening in the lives of that's women right. and girls around the world. So do not wait any longer. Again, 1160hope.com. Click on that SOS International banner and um, give a gift today. Brian, uh, one of our favorite like friends that we have on the show is uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. She's an English professor. She's a great follow on Twitter. And because she's an English professor, one of the things that she talks about quite often is language. Mm. The way that we understand each other, the way that we communicate with each other. And, you know, especially in this day and age on social media when communication seems to be like we just missing each other, right? We are misfiring <laughs> and misunderstanding. And she really talks about how language is difficult, like harder than we think. And sometimes to love one another and care for one another, we actually need to accept that we may not totally understand each other and the words that we're using and what they mean. 
So this is sort of a conversation about semantics. Like, do Mm -hmm. we mean the same thing when we use certain words? So I feel like marriage is a great example of this, (laughs) Brian, right? Like, and, and I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of a way this has happened. But for example, uh, you might come home and you might say something like, man, I'm hungry. And the subtext of that is, Carrie, why haven't you made me dinner yet? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm <laughs> yes. not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm just saying, like, true. we say things in marriage and there's a, there's a whole lot of, like, you know, language is in layers, right? There's the locution, what we say, then there's the, like, illocution, what we mean, and then there's the perlocution, like, what we want you to do about it. Yes, And yes. sometimes I think language gets... We get in arguments because we're missing each other in the subtext. Is there an example oh, yes. of that that you can think of in marriage? Uh, I mean, on a daily basis. Yeah, I right, feel, right. And, and a lot of times I, I see this flaw in myself where I will say something to what you just described. Because what you described is, oh, I didn't mean that. Right. But my wife reads into it. Yes. I also have the problem. I have the flip side problem where I will say something expecting my wife to understand the subtext of what I'm feeling instead of yeah, just saying what I'm feeling right uh, saying uh you know oh it's been a long time since we've talked so- something uh-huh. okay it just means we've been busy or yeah. it's like the subtext is I don't feel cared for yeah. I don't feel loved why <laughs> right. do you keep ignoring me why right. do you do this right and I- I- honestly I've gotten myself into trouble mm-hmm. because I will say things expecting my wife to understand uh-huh. the subtext and this and it she doesn't right it just right. goes because people aren't mind readers exactly yeah and, yeah. Like, and that yet we expect each other to be and vice versa carrie will do that to me uh-huh. and, and oftentimes something that pops the balloon of tension for us will be acknowledging sorry i said that but i really <laughs> meant this yes and i really meant this and so uh yeah i that happens um more more often than i would like to admit <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking like kevin and i recently were in a meeting with somebody and he kept under the table like bumping my leg and he was obviously trying to communicate something to me but I was getting annoyed that he was doing it. And so I finally turned to him and I was like, do you have something to say? And he was like, no, I'm just antsy. And literally there was nothing. Like he actually wasn't trying to communicate anything to me. He was just like shaking his leg because he was kind of like impatient to get out. But what I was, I was interpreting as he doesn't like what I'm saying. He wants me to change. And so, so it's funny. just like funny the way that we interpret each other's modes of communication and i think if we think about that like outside of marriage but in a lot of the arguments we're having online or in the church or whatever now certainly we are debating things we disagree with but Mm -hmm. what karen swallow prior is asserting is that some of what we're doing is just literally like missing each other in our language we might be using a word in a different way we might have a lot of subtext that we're not saying but we assume like we've been talking about here the other person gets. And what she says is this. She says language can be hard. It is easily misused, misunderstood, or made into an obstacle. Thus, when we don't understand or when we think we disagree with someone's words, we ought to look past the surface of the words and into the soul of the person by asking, Mm. what do you mean? 
Can you explain further? She says, even if our understanding ultimately yields unsurpassable disagreement, it will then be a disagreement founded on human dignity, not merely semantics. Don't you think that's a good word for us? I think it's so good. And she goes on later in the article to discuss how words literally change over Mm. the years. I just used one of them, right? Literally. Literally, Uh, yeah. It changes over the years. They evolve over time. And nowhere do I feel this more. I just spent a week with my children on vacation, my wife and my children. I don't know if you feel this way. When my kids talk to each other or to their friends, I... We've gotten to the point where they're speaking a different language than me, and so, so especially true. my son, especially my son, with him and his bro. Everyone's bro, everyone's this. Yeah. Like here's here's an example too, right? Like we remember when we were younger and things that were bad, like words that were negative, we turned into positives uh-huh. and this that. Anything that's good now is sick, <laughs> and I'm like. What? Like what? I, I, I actually had to say to my son the other day, you're no longer allowed to call your mother bro. Like, do not call your mother bro. Because be like, you, you, I bro, get called where, bro, bro where too, yeah, And I'm yeah. like, but it's the way the next generation or yeah, the generation yeah. talks. And yeah. you start to realize that our parents probably felt that way about yes. how we talked. Yes. And now I'm at the age where I'm going, I, I looked at my wife one day on vacation. I said, Two things. I said, I don't understand them when they're talking to each other. And it bothers me the way that they talk. Like, I just like use real words. Use and then I'm thinking words. to myself, that's what my parents' generation yeah, thought of totally. us. Their, gen- their parents' generation thought that of them. My right. kids will think. So words, the point is that words evolve. Right. Words change. And so we have to, in Karen's uh, words here, say, mm-hmm. I have to do the work to make sure. Yes. Like, Aubrey, if you say something to make me angry, I need to make sure that that's actually what you meant. Yeah. And then I can be angry about it, and we could talk. But you might say, "Oh no, I what I didn't mean that right. at all. I actually meant that as a positive." Right. And I'm like, "Oh, that word, that word's always been negative to uh-huh. me." And we could talk about these things uh, generationally. This is huge. But I would also think uh, culturally, right? I was yeah. down in the South this week. They talk differently mm-hmm. than we do in the North, mm-hmm. or uh, across races, we talk differently. Mm-hmm. And Karen's words were to us are. Uh, we have to do the work to get below right. so that we can understand. And this also has ramifications for how we preach, uh, how point, we read scripture Ryan. and all sorts of other things. I do think, you know, we'll just kind of wrap up with this. But one of the things that Kevin and I have learned in, in marriage counseling, just that very practical tool of saying uh, someone says something and then you are an active li- listener and you repeat what they said. And you say, what That's I right. think I hear you saying is and then they'll then you give them an opportunity to say actually no what i mean is okay yeah. now what i hear you say, and you just do that work and to do that on social media to do that in our churches to do that like you said in our families will actually i think help us communicate more clearly and perhaps when we have a conflict it becomes less about tearing people down and more about the actual conversation right. that we're having so anyway i thought that was a good encouraging wise word Go ahead, that Brian. conversation that conversation was sick. <laughs> <laughs> that conversation was legit, literally sick. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. 
It'll happen to you. Ryan, you just got away with your family. Now, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't necessarily a romantic getaway with your spouse, but you had a good refreshing time. Uh, no, it was time, not. Because right? <laughs> your kids were there, right? So exactly. <laughs> Do you and Carrie ever get times to get away, just the two of you? Or is it harder now with the kids being older? Like, what's that like? Yeah, it's a little bit of a both end there. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, we're about to read an article where the guy says him and his wife get away on a trip every year. And that to me, we have not been that. Uh, now I do, uh, part of this has been financial and part of this is you, when, when your kids are younger, they're hard. And then as your kids get older, the schedules and this and that. But I think Carrie and I, we went through a stage where we tried to, even get away for a night or two at our anniversary. Like yeah. literally uh, we live in Downers Grove and we'd stay in a hotel in Lombard while the grandparents yeah. stayed with them. Yeah, now for that. our, for our 20th wedding anniversary, two months before the world shut down for COVID, uh, we went to Mexico and we Ooh, saved up for the year. Nice. And what I would say is, um, that was not just awesome because it's Mexico, right. but, it had been 20 years mm. since my wife and I had been away, just the two of us for an entire week. And wow. I understand why that's so difficult. Like yeah. I, right now, you might think, well, your kids are older. You could do that whenever you want. No, my kids are super busy and I right. need to, right. you know, we're, and we want to be part of their life and their yeah. stuff. Whereas versus when they're younger, you like feel guilty asking the grandparents, Hey, can you come stay with three toddlers or a baby? Right. And, right. Um, so th- this conversation we're going to have, there's great value in getting away. I don't think. The danger in this is to say it's an all or nothing deal. You mm. either you either go on vacation alone mm. with your spouse to somewhere beautiful for an entire week yeah. or you don't do anything. Yeah. I do think it recharged our batteries even when on our anniversary, my in-laws would come for 48 hours and stay at our house and we'd go to the movies and out to dinner and stay at a hotel and That's go to the city. Huge. Boom. And so I do think the intentionality of getting away with your spouse, even in the midst of the craziness yeah. is, is really important. So yeah, I'd love I, to go to Mexico every year. That oh, was heck my best. Yeah, me too. I'm in, I'm ready for that trip. I, um, you know, was thinking about this because one of the things in, in our, I have said before in the show that years ago, Kevin and I were in a pretty intense season of marriage counseling. It was one of the best things we've ever done. I'm very pro marriage counseling mm-hmm. uh, for any couple that needs it. But one of the things that we had to learn to do was two different things. One was to have a calendar meeting where we just like Monday morning, we calendared our week together and made sure we knew where people needed to be when. And part of that was some of our stress was that we were like going in different directions, but not communicating about it. But then separately from that, like Tuesday night, have a date night or dinner and a movie or whatever. And but we weren't allowed to calendar there. Like that was not a business meeting. We had our business meet. This was just like remember that you like each other. And I, I, <laughs> yes. I know, like I've heard some kind of critics of the date night concept say date night can't fix a marriage. That's too shallow. That's it, it for us. Date night was a tool in a, yeah. in a tool belt of many tools that helped us just remember like, Oh, we like each other's company. Let's yeah. invest yeah. in each other. Let's remember we're like friends and partners and lovers. And like a date yeah. night helps you kind of like, reinvigorate some of that stuff so, so I, I would I, I would agree with your statement that somebody whoever said it date night's not gonna fix your yeah. marriage you know what else it's not gonna do it's not gonna hurt your marriage it's gonna <laughs> it's right, a that's right. it's a benefit it's a it's a plus it's a positive yeah besides this 
it also, I think when Carrie and I get into bad spots, it's never, um, or it's rarely like we're going at it or we're mm, arguing or we yeah. don't like each other or yeah. we don't. There's moments. Every marriage has sure. moments like that. It's generally when my wife and I are not, are not married at our best, right? Yeah. When we're not at our height, it is, uh, we are not showing each other any attention yes. everything else is so is trumping true. everything else what so the kids true. schedule what they're doing got to take care of the dogs got to clean the house i've got all these meetings at church yeah. or the radio yeah and and our relationship goes down and down mm-hmm. and down in the and so therefore all our relationship becomes is calendaring and yeah. you yeah. drive here and i drive here and that's yeah. a lot of what parenting is like those are super important but there has to be times i think you put it in a wonderful way. There has to be times, whether you're going on a trip together mm-hmm. or on a regular date night or whatever else, there has to be moments where you look at each other and go, oh, that's right. I, I really like you. I like you. And I have fun with you. Uh-huh. And I like to laugh with you. And so often for Carrie and I, it's not things we have to work through. It's just yeah. needing to be not even reminded that we like each other. It's needing to be put in the place where we go, Oh, you know what? It's really fun to laugh with you. Yeah, just like, like this is connect great. again. Like, I just I, I remember this. This yeah. is really good. So, sorry, it's been two weeks since uh-huh. we laughed, but this is good. I uh-huh. still like you. And then you go, okay, I'm kind of, the the tank is filled up. Yeah, and so that's exactly. I would right. say ideally this is a trip, as uh, mm-hmm. as we've talked about. But it doesn't only have to it be a trip. It doesn't have to be a trip. Well, over at churchleaders.com, Eric Geiger gives five reasons why you should get away with your spouse every year. So he is specifically talking about trips. But I think we could put this in the context of trips or date nights or just like any kind of special time away. He says, one, a reconnection. Time away with your spouse is not the only way to connect in your marriage, but it is a great way because you're able to press pause on the hustle of life back home and it allows you to focus on each other and the marriage with significantly significantly less distractions. Mm-hmm. He says, to reprioritization. He talks about his wife, Kay. They have dreams and goals for their marriage, their lives, and their family, but the struggles of life can like take that out of you. That's right. And so to have time alone in a way helps you to remember the goals you've set for your marriage. And then you can make adjustments, sometimes big, sometimes small, to your schedules and your rhythms when you return home. I actually have a good friend. She and her husband just went specifically on a retreat together, just the two of them, to just really pray through and dream about what they want their marriage to look like in the upcoming Mm. years. And then they made plans accordingly. And I thought, well, that's a, you know, that's something Kevin and I haven't done is like set aside time for like, what, what do our goals need to look like together? And I think that's an interesting thing you can do on a, you know, a getaway with your spouse. Three, he says deeper discussion. Of course, you can like connect more deeply because you have more time to process when you're away. Four, have fun together. It's what we were just talking about. Like explore new places, new restaurants, try some adventures, laugh together. Five, you make memories, of course. And I think those memories are really important because they are, like we were just talking about, an investment. They're like a deposit. So when you have difficult seasons in your marriage, you can actually withdraw on some of those memories, some of the fun, some of those good times um, so that you're not withdrawing from bankruptcy, right? You're Mm. withdrawing from like a full bank account, essentially, in your in your relationship. Brian, do any of those stand out to you? I just love the fun one. Like, yeah. I think yeah. there's so much about this stage of life uh, p- being all parenting where you could lose sight of the fun. Like it just my kids are super busy or, you know, you're changing diapers all the time or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever you're at. I think the just 
fun is uh, here's the deal. When my wife and I get away, I never not have fun. I never regret true? it. And so true. Yep. Eric Geiger in this article, he gets really honest at the end. He says, this is costly. Mm-hmm. This is uh, it takes a lot of work to mm-hmm. get to this point. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it also requires a support system around you. And that's where I want to be careful, because not everybody has grandparents who can come right. watch their kids. That's not everybody right. has. So maybe the answer is we're going to prioritize a date night each yeah. week. Or maybe yeah. it's, hey, I have parents who can come watch them for a night. So we're mm-hmm. going to go to the city for a night. Right. Like this doesn't have to be, you know, an all inclusive resort in Jamaica in every yeah. year. Man, right. Does that sound nice? Right. Oh, but it doesn't amazing. need to be that Uh, maybe that's every decade you do something Mm -hmm. like that but Mm -hmm. i do think prioritizing your marriage uh is always going to it's going to make you a better parent it's going to make your kids it's going to make a better family it's going to be it's only a positive yep yep that's a good word for all of us it is the end of today's show and at the end of every show we love to bring you something encouraging and inspiring or something to put a challenging uh thought into your mind or into mm-hmm. your soul. And uh, Brian, I thought there'd be no better way than to encourage and inspire people by you helping me write my sermon for Sunday morning. I'm ready. Um, I'm okay, ready. So first of all, are you preaching this Sunday? See, this is why this is good. This is why I'm ready to do this. I'm actually not preaching this week. Uh, I'm actually not even going to be at church this week. So the first Sunday I've missed in a long time. And so uh, I, I need to be still helping craft a sermon so i'm ready for this okay okay you're ready for this so maybe we'll be uh maybe we'll prepare you for a future sermon okay so it's good friday uh, palm sunday excuse me palm sunday but i i'm not actually going to do a palm sunday message we're in a series right now on the four g's at renewal church they're kind of like the culture at renewal church gospel growth good neighboring and generosity i've got good neighboring and I've decided to go kind of a different route than, you know, you might typically do in Good Neighboring. And I'm going to preach from Luke 14, where Jesus talks about um, two things. One, if you're invited to a party, take the lowest place at the table. Don't play, take mm. the place of honor, but take the lowest place. And because there may be someone more honorable that comes in and then you're sort of publicly shamed and you have to move down <laughs> to a lower place. So take the lowest place and then let the master of the party be the one to move you forward if he so chooses or she so chooses. And then simultaneously, Jesus talks about, hey, and if you're going to have a party, by the way, like go out and invite the poor, the broken, the crippled. Like, invite everybody to the party that gets overlooked. Okay, so it's going to be kind of a sermon on good neighboring via humility or via welcoming everyone, something like that. Okay, so let's narrow it down, Brian, to humility. If you were preaching on, like, taking that lowest seat at the table, what do you think that looks like in people's lives? Like, we're not in a shame-honor society, so we're not necessarily, like, needing to, like, you know, we don't really even have seats of honor necessarily in parties this this day and age. Maybe a That's wedding right. party would be a good example, at least not in the American West. But in our society, like, what does that look like to take the lowest seat at the table? Man, that's a good one. Uh, I would think metaphorically, the metaphorical lowest seat at the table, because you're right. I feel like even at most parties, you don't even sit at a table anymore. Yeah, right? right. Like, right. Just sit down. right. I think in our culture what jumps to mind for me, what humility looks like uh, is being a good listener and not always needing to be the one who's heard all the time. Oh, that's good. I'm writing this down as sermon notes, everybody. All right. right. I think that we do live in a culture um, where everybody wants to be heard. I've said this before. A lot of times I even listen 
and don't even hear what the other person's saying because I'm formulating <laughs> what I want to say, right? So true. And we uh, we are in a culture of noise. We are talking all the time, mm. and a lot of times we're just talking louder to be heard above other people. Mm. And I think truly humble people uh, are willing to not be heard. They're willing yeah. to listen to what other people have to say to to interject when asked and to not always project themselves as the expert on the, on everything. And yeah. so that's the first one that's that good. jumped to mind for me. Be a listener uh, and allow other people. Uh, and then I also think of like Dave and John Ferguson's book, uh, the hero maker. Hero right? maker. Like I think, mm-hmm. I think we are, all, our culture is uh, all about, um, shining the spotlight on myself, yep. right? Like, how do I get a bigger stage? How do I get bigger influence? How yeah. do I, and it's, it's all this. Yeah. And, and the point of their book, Hero Maker, I think what made it very powerful was the greatest thing you can do is to make somebody else the hero, mm. is to build into them, is yeah. to lift them up, it's to pass the um, the influence on to other people. And that's yeah. really hard as well, right? We yeah. all want to be praised in and of ourselves. And so yeah. uh, those are the two I'm going with. Those are two of your points. Be a good listener and uh, prop up other people. Uh uh, shine the light on other people. There Love you go. That. That's so good. I have this great story. My my son Nolan, when he was really little, he had this area of the house he called the office, and it was just like his little desk. And he would go around and find all of the like flashlights and like uh, reading lamps and headlamps, and I don't know why he had this weird collection that he would put in his office. And this is an actual story that happened. There was a power outage many years ago, but we could not find any of the flashlights in the house. And my oldest son, Eli was like, mom, have you checked the office? And so we, <laughs> I walked over, I opened the door and literally like all the flashlights, all the headlights, like all of our light sources were there. And of course they were out of batteries, like totally drained. And I thought this right here, this is, you can preach because I do think that's what we do is we either Shine, we shine the light so much on ourselves that we end up like hoarding it for ourselves and we don't actually we need light everywhere right like we need especially the light of the gospel to go everywhere so our job as christians is not to hoard it for ourselves but to spread yes. the light everywhere so that the batteries don't drain so that light can keep shining so that the gospel goes everywhere so i think that's really good brian i think i might i think i might use that story and that point that's good i also think there are little ways like when we think about neighboring and we talked about this um, sometime in the show recently as well, is that we tend to think about what it means to be good neighbors to people that aren't necessarily Christians. Mm. But, you know, what does it look like in this day and age after there's been so much infighting to go back to like loving one another, even within the church and yeah. make yeah. relationships right and, you know, do the do the healing work that needs to happen so that when we're you know, using Jesus's metaphor, like inviting people to the party, to the kingdom of God party, they see the love that we have for one another. I think that's something that we need. That involves yeah. humility too. Yeah. Like not yeah. just putting our non-Christian neighbor first and serving their needs, but also like, have we done the work to humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters before Christ and make sure that's those right. relationships are right. So there's like that internal and that external focus as well. And- yeah, and I think ultimately uh, we want to tell people uh, that humility 
uh, grows in us as we grow in our understanding and devotion to Jesus. It's mm. Philippians 2, right? Yep. That Jesus is the ultimate picture of humility. And, and you could tie it back into Palm Sunday. That's what Palm Sunday is, yep. right? He goes riding in on a donkey to That's die. Right. Uh, and that that is the ultimate picture of humility, Philippians yep. chapter 2. And then Philippians 2 says, treat each other the same way. Like, yep. look upon the humility of Jesus and now live that way. Mm-hmm. And that's never anything we'll do perfectly. It's never anything where you're going to wake up one day and be like, awesome. I'm perfectly yeah. Jesus humble right now. Like, I got this. <laughs> but but that that, that is our our calling right yeah, it doesn't just yeah. say hey look at what jesus did and be admi- and admire it it says now treat in mm. your relationships with one another uh you know basically have the humility of christ and here's what that humility was he uh offered himself as a living sacrifice you know he yeah. um yeah. philippians 2 and so that's the picture of humility that we strive for and how do we grow in it by looking upon him Amen. and going okay that's what true humility looks like and so and we never attain it right like, like yeah. i joked i'm never going to be like cool i, I nailed this now I nailed i'm this. humble right now i'm humble <laughs> uh but that that is how we are to treat one another is overwhelming and I think really a challenge for us. Yeah, such, such well, Brian, you're a great sermon writing partner. There's your I feel sermon. Like I'm going to listen to this uh, on the radio, like maybe later this week, and I'll write my sermon based on it. Done and done. But uh, even I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but really, I think this is a good lesson for all of us Absolutely. to put other people first. And we do it, you're right, by the work of Christ in us as we follow mm. his example and allow his spirit to to morph us and change us so that we um, have the humility that Jesus Christ showed for us on the Amen. cross. Well, we hope that that encourages you on this Tuesday evening. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com